This is an I Am Listening original podcast. I don't think Keir Starmer himself would say that he'd sealed the deal because I don't think you should ever take people for, for granted politically. I think that there is a, a lot of dissatisfaction with the Conservative government and that's been reflected in the election results we've seen. I think what Keir Starmer has done is change the image of the Labour Party He's made it electable. He's made people listen to it again. But there's still work to do. And in our small way, we want to be part of that work over the next few months. Welcome to the Kent Politics Podcast, your go-to source for insightful discussions on local and national political matters. Join us as we take a deep dive into local government across the county. Find out what the key decision makers have to say, what your money is being spent on, and how the party's policies could affect how we live. Plus, don't miss our regular feature, Westminster Watch, where we dissect the latest developments and decisions shaping the political landscape in the heart of the UK's capital. Engage with us as we delve into the issues that matter to you and explore the dynamic world of politics from a Kent perspective. Welcome to the Kent Politics Podcast. In a week, it was revealed as a spanner in the works in Seven Oaks. Kent County Council set a budget to survive another year and Medway braces itself for a four-month road closure grown. I'm Simon Finley, local democracy reporter covering Kent County Council, and I'm joined by my usual accomplices, Daniel Essen, who reports on borough and district councils in Kent. Hello. And Robert Buddy, who is the local democracy reporter for Medway. Hello. Right, and we'll also be speaking to KM political editor Paul Francis about the week in Westminster, and our special guest, Thunder District Council leader Rick Everett. Right, first up, we're going to talk about what's happening in Medway Council. Robert, what's been going on there? So this week, I'd like to talk about the various ways in which Medway Council is trying to work, keyword trying, with central government on a number of issues. The first of which is the planned roadworks for Frinsbury Hill, which will be closed for 15 weeks while a new entrance to the Maritime Academy is built. The whole road is due to be closed and it's a major route and it's bound to cause serious delays as well as severely impacting local businesses. And I understand that Midway Council have written to the government, haven't they? What was that all about then? Yeah, so the council uh, say they've set out a number of possible ways to shorten the length of the roadworks. The initial uh, sort of assessment was that it would take 19 weeks. This was reduced. Uh, Medway Council said that was unacceptable, so that was reduced to 15 weeks. And the council is trying to minimise disruption as much as possible. So they've suggested a number of uh, options, such as working seven days a week, extending working hours from 7am till 7pm, uh, and nighttime working. But these were all rejected by the Department for Education, who's in charge of arranging contractors. The council says they know that these things will mean greater costs, but they say it's worth it to reduce the level of disruption for residents and have asked the DfE to look again. Mm. What else is happening then? So there's also the local plan, which received national attention in December, when Michael Gove called Medway Council one of the worst authorities in the country in terms of planning. Medway were named along with St Albans, Amber Valley, Ashfield, Uttlesford, Basildon and Castle Point as not having a local plan and the Secretary of State set a 12-week deadline for a timetable for when they would have one. Well, this week Medway Council progressed to the next step of their local plan, uh, which has been consulted upon and is going to go back for consultation again in the summer. Medway Council said from the very beginning that they were always going to meet this deadline, uh, even before it was set by Michael Gove, and the problems were all caused by the previous administration not creating a local plan since 2003. And of course Medway Council has asked central government for quite a significant bit of help 
in balancing its budget this year. That's right. Uh, as we've spoken before, Medway Council has asked to be allowed to borrow £30 million over the next two years to set a balanced budget and get on a safer financial footing. We still haven't heard from the Department of Leveling Up Housing and Communities about this. And the deadline is February 29th, which is also, inconveniently, the date of the budget meeting for the council. If they don't get that permission, the Chartered Institute of Public Finance and Accountancy say there's no way that they can create a credible balanced budget and so would likely have to file a Section 114 effectively declaring bankruptcy. So Medway Council's survival is firmly within Michael Gove's hands. So let me get this right. So if Michael Gove doesn't approve the £30 million loan, they can't put forward a balanced budget, uh, they will have to declare a Section 114 loan and they will go bust. That's right, yeah. Well, thanks, Robert. Uh, Now moving on to second-tier councils. Dan, what's been happening um, in your part of the world? Uh, So council-wise, I've been looking at a a possible spanner in the works for Seven Oaks District Council's local plan. Um, The proposals are are currently in development, um, but they include a possible whole new village of 2,500 homes at the top of the Darrenth Valley in an area called Pedham Place. But National Highways have told the council there may be some problems with their ideas. Mm, Okay. Well, why is that? What's the trouble? So the short of it is that the proposed site for the new village, you know, plans for which are backed by a couple of developers, is extremely close to junction three of the M25. Um, National Highways, which is the central government body which manages road networks, has responded to the council's consultation uh, with some criticisms. It's all quite sort of technical and bureaucratic, but essentially they say the council's proposal for a new village is based on the assumption of some roadworks and improvements to that junction on the M25, which are by no means guaranteed. You know, National Highways say if those roadworks do happen, it will be you know, 2025 to 2030, or maybe even later. Um, I've spoken to the chair of nearby parish council in Ainsford and some local villages who say that traffic in that area is already a nightmare, especially if there's any sort of accident or delay. Um, and they they basically say that they don't see any way the roads in that area could be improved to accommodate you know thousands of new vehicles um, that could come from a new village without causing chaos. So what are the council going to do about it then? Well, the local plan, which includes this proposal for a new village, um, needs to be in place pretty much by 2025 as it will govern Seven Oaks Council's house building from 2025 to 2040. During that time, they need to build an extra 10,000 homes to combat what's been called an acute shortage of housing in the district. Yeah, but... When I confronted the council to ask about um, you know, these problems that National Highways have raised, they kept um, pretty quiet about it, basically, and just told me that um, you know, they'll take into account all the feedback they've received before they propose their, um, their revised and, and sort of final version of their local plan. Um, so as of yet, it's not, you know, not quite clear whether or not this stuff National Highways has raised will you know, stop this new village being built. But more broadly, the story is a pretty good example of just how fraught local planning and infrastructure actually is. Uh, you have so many different agencies involved at, at every level of government um, in areas which are essential for local planning, from you know the road network to, to countryside management. You know, this kind of thing pretty much never goes off without a hitch. Mm, mm. So what else have you been looking at? I understand there's more problems at the University of Kent. Yeah, so I took a bit of a break from local government business to cover a, a protest up at the University of Kent against um, some planned uh, or proposed cl- course closures and, and layoffs. The uni recently announced um, a month-long consultation on plans to shut nine courses and, and lay off the best part of 60 staff over the next few years as a result. Okay. Why is the county's uni uh, closing courses and how do the students and staff feel about that, Dan? 
So basically, the, the the short of it is the university is closing courses because it's in serious financial trouble. You know, it's had some pretty serious um, cash problems for quite some time. You know, over the time I was a student at Uni of Kent, you know, it was beset by academic strikes, a long-running voluntary redundancy scheme in an attempt to shed staff and save cash. But at the end of January, they announced a consultation on closing nine courses, uh, which would include the wholesale closing of the Medway campus, where the buildings will be taken over by the University of Greenwich. They're planning on laying off 58 staff, and the courses including you know, modern languages, comparative literature, philosophy and religion, health and social care and journalism are all set to go over the uh, coming years. Um, the response to the news hasn't been you know, too enthusiastic from, from staff and students. There's a petition signed by the best part of 15,000 people calling for the subjects to be saved. Um, students and academics I met at a demonstration told me that the situation was pretty dire. You know, the, local, the trade union representing academics, the UCU, says that m- the blame for all of these problems lies squarely at management's door. Um, but others have also said to me that at this point they think the closures and the layoffs are pretty much baked in. There's no chance of saving those jobs and those courses. Well, thanks, Dan. Thanks for all that. So, Simon, I understand it was budget week at County Hall. How did that go? Well, it was a very long day. It was eight hours to get through the business, but arguably it was the most important week in the history of Kent County Council because passing the budget, which is once a formality at most local authorities, is now more of a declaration of survival. And KC started with a shortfall in its budget process of more than 80 million quid, and somehow they've managed to sort of find the money down the back of the sofa, etc. But it was passed by 46 votes to 15 with a single abstention. Uh, there were 14 Conservative councillors apparently who weren't there, but the result was something of a foregone conclusion as the Tories have got three quarters of all the seats in the chamber and what dragged it out were eight amendments from the opposition parties, all of which were thoroughly and uh, comprehensively rejected. Um, so obviously they've got to save a pretty huge amount of money. Where, where have they actually made the savings? Well, there's no nook and cranny, no crevice that they haven't gone to have a, a look in for some cuts and every avenue appears to have been explored. I mean, there's always... Obviously, the the raising of council tax by just under 5%, anything more than 5% will require a referendum. There will be job losses, there will be redundancies, and all frontline services will be be looked at. Um, We heard recently about the number of community wardens. That'll be nearly halved, and there'll be a host of other ways that they will will be found to save money, not least upping the the dividends from uh, from investments they've got and, and securing new contracts and basically trying to find every little bit of saving that they can. It's not saving to reinvest, it's saving for saving's sake. It is, it's all about saving money. And what sort of role are reserves playing in the budget? Well, it's no exaggeration to say that this budget wouldn't have got through if it hadn't been delivered by reserves. I mean, KCC, it's a reasonably prudently run council. You know, outside people say that, independent bodies say that, and it does have a fairly deep and rich amount of reserves. However, the millions of pounds taken this time round will have to be replaced at some time in the future. And KCC, it has to be said, is working through its uh, reserves at quite a startling rate. Um, so what sort of uh, you know, local government finance experts saying about the state of KCC's coffers? Well, John Betts, who's the acting corporate director of finance, said KCC faces rising costs. And he's warned the continued dipping into reserves is not what he called um, a significant risk. And this guy is important because uh, what he is known, he's known in the world of local government as a 151 officer. And he has the part to declare 
an authority bankrupt under the Section 114 notes, which we have talked about quite a bit recently, which is basically if you can't um, deliver the services that you have to under your legal obligations, then effectively you have to dec- you have to issue a, a 114 notice, and that's effective bankruptcy. So KCC survives for another year. Can it survive beyond that? Well, who knows? Um, what the council doesn't know is what it doesn't know. Uh, the survival strategy that it does have is is set out in a document called Securing Kent's Future, which sort of takes it to the end of the decade. But what it can't do is forecast un, unexpected financial shocks. I mean, one good example of a, a shock to the system was with Ukraine, which has pushed up inflation, which has pushed up costs. And and when, at the same time, the, lo- the government is not giving... Um, local government the same amount of funding as it needs to provide the services this has caused the real squeeze and that's why most councils are under under, under so much stress at the minute um, but in the absence of any signal from the government that it wants to give local government more money more savings will have to be found and more reserves will be spent so it's kind of going one way at the minute um, but if something unexpected comes along, then KCC, like a lot of other councils, will probably go bust. Well, anyway, that's what's been happening across Kent and Medway. Thanks to Dan and Robert for being here today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Is there a topic that you would like to be discussed on the Kent Politics Podcast? Perhaps you've got a question for one of our panel, or you'd like to comment on a hot topic in local or national government. Get in touch by emailing or sending a voice note to Kent Politics Podcast at thekmgroup.co.uk. Okay, next up we're speaking to Paul Francis, our political editor, about the events at Westminster. What's going on then, Paul? Well, it's a week which saw a ticking off for one Kent MP over her use of statistics. And as we all know, there's that old saying, lies, damn lies and statistics. So Laura Trott, the MP for Sevenoaks, has a job in government that goes under the rather grand sounding title as Chief Secretary to the Treasury and is seen in some quarters as something of a rising star. However, she has been rebuked by the statistics watchdog over claims she made about taxes. The chair of the UK Statistics Watchdog has rebuked her over recent claims on tax cuts for average earners. Trot, according to Sir Robert Choate, who chairs the Statistics Authority, risked misleading or confusing the public in statements to the House of Commons in November, which would probably suggest to a typical listener that the average worker's overall bill has fallen in the cash terms. Now, it came after she claimed in November that taxes for the average worker would have gone down a £1,000 since 2010. Mm. So well, why does this matter? Well, in some ways, I don't think it does terribly much. It's a fairly light wrap on the knuckles, but the MP has come under further scrutiny for uh, a second time when she clashed with Evan Davis on the Today programme on Radio 4, uh, but appeared not to understand the Treasury's forecast for the tax burden and got herself into something of a dreadful tangle. So not the best weeks for someone, as they say, who has been seen in some quarters as a rising star. Mm. Mm. Okay, listen, well, let's move on to, we hear a lot about target seats in Kent, but we don't hear so much about non-target seats, which apparently are really important in themselves. And you've been looking through some of them locally. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to look at this from a different perspective, uh, rather than the, the, the sort of fairly intense focus people like us have on the uh, the target seats and whether they're going to be won by those who are targeting them. And Labour has around... 200 constituencies which they basically have no chance of winning and uh, there's several of those in Kent you can list the uh, seats just uh, just by uh, name uh, Tunbridge Wells, Seven Oaks, Tunbridge and Morling, 
uh, all sort of the West Kent seats are fairly no-go territory for Labour. But we have an intriguing battle uh, in a Kent seat following the or the announcement that Tracy Crouch is going to resign from her Chatham and Aylesford seat, uh, which she won in 2010, but is now standing down. Now, Labour held that seat between 1997 and 2010, so it will come under the cover of a, a target seat. I think an interesting thing, Paul, on that was uh, the recent by-election in Wellingborough saw uh, Labour overturn a, a majority of uh, 18,540 uh, in the 2019 election. And Chatham and Aylesford uh, similarly had a, a majority at 2019 of 18,540. So what was considered or has always been considered recently as a safe seat amongst the three Medway constituencies now not so safe at all. Uh, absolutely, you're right there. It's not uh, not safe in any respect. Uh, and I think one, one of the issues is that Tracy Crouch carried a kind of personal vote, if you like, uh, regardless of party politics. She was very popular in the same way that uh, perhaps Anne Whittaker, the former Mason MP, uh, was uh, prepared to speak, speak her mind and tell her, tell people what she thought was uh, going well and what was going wrong with government. Mm. You mentioned Tombridge Wells just a second ago, uh, Paul, and um, Labour don't appear to have chosen a candidate in Tombridge Wells, yet that, we know, is possibly the number one target for the Liberal Democrats. Do you read anything into that? Are they going to give the Lib Dems a bit of an easy ride? Well, you could uh, you could draw that conclusion. I think that there's not a universal view amongst Labour in Tommage Wells about whether to soft pedal on the seat in order to allow the Lib Dems to come in. And I think that mirrors some of the other areas of Kent where there have been joint council administrations between Labour and the Liberal Democrats. So there's a template for us, if you like. But I don't see wholesale tactical voting going on in Tunbridge Wells. In some places like safe seats like this, uh, Labour doesn't really want to give the Lib Dems too much of a free ride. Mm. Because they've got, their, they've got their eye on the on the seat, if not at this election. They're, they're saying that you know the social demographics of Tunbridge Wells are changing uh, right. in a way which suits them rather than the Conservatives. And uh, you know the... The traditional wear of Tunbridge Wells voters, you know, this reputation it has for as being a seat where retired people came uh, and uh, came to live is not really there anymore. And, uh, you know, Labour proved that it could hold its vote and increase its vote in the council elections. Because well, the, the Lib Dem candidate in Tunbridge Wells, um, Mike Martin, who was on this show a couple of weeks ago, and he intimated, which was interesting, I thought, that there were two other seats that they're interested in, possibly because similar sort of demographic, demographic shifts and, and just a general shift in sort of mood that has happened since those Conservative MPs were elected. One was Laura Trott in, in Sevenoaks, but more interestingly enough, the redrawn constituency of Helen Grant in Maidstone and Malling. If you look through most of the divisions, most of the wards, uh, the last council election, those went to the Liberal Democrats and they've got a, a candidate there called a guy called Dave Nagy who is a very well known face in um in, in Maidstone and certainly has the um the backing of, of people like Trudy Dean in, in the mauling areas of that. Um so whilst it would be a tall order to turn over a twenty thousand majority that Helen Grant has, well what well, how do you assess the chances there then? Well I think you're right in some respects. I remember from the 
2017 election that the Lib Dems saw this as a seat which was in play. This that was the phrase they used rather than a target. It was a seat that they felt they had an outside chance of winning. Nick Clegg came down, did a couple of rallies, whipped up support amongst the um, the party, uh, and they were genuinely optimistic about their prospects. Uh, and they wound up their campaign, I seem to remember, in a uh, vineyard in, uh, near, near, near Maystone. But what happened is they got trounced. Mm. And uh, the, the, the Tories held, held on comfortably. It seemed, but it does seem that the atmosphere has changed. Um, a lot of MPs that got in, you know, in the 2005, 2010, the likes of Tracy Crouch and Nellingrad or whatever, um, came in at a time when the party was on, on the rise. Um, it may not have been in, in government on its own. It may have been in co- coalition, but they were on the rise. There was an ascendancy there. This this now starts to feel a bit like it's the long slide towards the end. Yeah, I think that's always dangerous, isn't it, to say that's what's on the cards. But it mm. does begin to feel. I think we've spoken before about the the Tories seeing this uh, the, the current situation about their plight as, as akin to. John Major's administration in 1992, where Labour thought they uh, would win and, and didn't. And of course, the other side, the flip side is that Labour supporters are saying this is very much like 1997, when we did have a huge landslide. Mm. So he takes your money and picks your choice. Mm. It was interesting. I I, I read, I, I was away last week, but um, I, I read that um, Anne Whittacombe has been in touch. She's uh, rocked up to Rochester and uh, for to... Um, on behalf of the Reform Party, uh, you and I will remember um, Anne Whittacombe not just as an MP, but a couple of years ago when she was did a turn for the Brexit Party at the Detling Showgrounds in front of must have been, I think about three or four thousand people in that hall that day. It was quite remarkable. And when she walked down the central aisle, it was like there was almost like the 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 the, the waves came in. You know, to, you know, she she was, she was walking down the aisle, and everybody wanted to shake her hand, put their arm on her shoulder, and stuff like that. It was it was quite uh, it was quite remarkable, and um, it just made me wonder. Is she thinking of standing? And if she stood in Maidstone and Morling, which is sort of um, nominally her old seat, although with new boundaries, whether that would affect the result? Do you think she would come back at this stage in her life? Uh, well, I'd like to, I'd like to, in a sense, from what, from the perspective of a journalist covering politics, it would be great, wouldn't it? But mm, careful, uh, wouldn't it? <laughs> she, uh, she did stand for the Brexit Party. In, uh, but did so in the West Country, um, Devon and Cornwall way, I think it was. So she, while she stood as a candidate for the Brexit party, uh, she did so in in somewhere different. Now, did, I don't really think there's much prospect of her uh, trying to resume or rehabilitate herself in Maidstone uh, as, a, as a Conservative candidate, and I'm pretty sure the Conservatives would draw the line. <laughs> No, no, I wasn't thinking as a conservative, but I was thinking of uh, oh, yeah. For, yeah, for the Reform Party, and, and and you know, would that put extra pressure on Helen Grant's vote? Well, let's remember that Helen's lost a lot of the sort of like very sort of safe, wieldy type um, villages and and the, those rural parts of the constituency, which were where, where the vote would be um, fairly uh, fairly solid. Yeah, I think she she has. As you say, lost some of her support that she had at the outset, um, but he remarkably, uh, or maybe not remarkably, but has in each of the elections she's fought won reasonably comfortably. Um, 
So, uh, as I say, I don't expect her to be challenged by the Reform Party, at least, and maybe not as direct a uh, target as Liberal Democrats want it to be. I think the Lib Dems have always targeted Maidstone as an area where they feel they have a good chance of winning, but it just hasn't happened for them. Mm. You and I will go back and remember... Jasper. The, J- Jasper Gerrard, yes, yes. Uh, who, who stood and uh, a journalist at the time who was fighting with the Lib Dems. He ran them pretty close. He had a really good campaign, but when it came to the vote, things didn't move in his, his direction. Mm, yeah, and I think Peter Carroll fought it a couple of times as well, and he didn't get it either. Yeah. Um, so there's been a succession of Liberal Democrat Party leaders who've come down expecting to have a good chance of winning and haven't. So maybe the Lib Dem strategy this time around will be to have no high-flying visitors down to, on the campaign trail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as indeed, you know, sometimes the Conservatives... Uh, local Conservatives don't like uh, the idea of hosting a visit by VIP visitors because they think it does them more damage than good. Mm. Particularly if, if that person has been in the news for things that perhaps they shouldn't have been in the news for. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, OK, listen. Look, Paul, thank you very much indeed for your time today. It's been uh, fascinating speaking to you as always and uh, catch up with you very, very soon. Yeah, look forward to the next time. Next, I'm joined by this week's special guest, leader of Thunder District Council, Rick Everett. Rick, thanks for joining us. Looking forward to it, Simon. We always talk about our guest's journey into politics. Can you just sort of guide us how you got into politics? Yeah, so I've always been interested in politics. And in fact, I studied politics at university in the in the 1980s, a long while ago. And I've always been a supporter of the Labour Party. But uh, interestingly, my first active involvement in politics was in a campaign against the Labour Party in Greenwich in the 1990 local elections and basically the issue was that Charlton had been playing at Crystal Palace's Selhurst Park ground for five years, wanted to come back to their ground, put in a planning application and the council rejected it and were quite hostile to Charlton coming back to their original ground where they played since 1919. Um, So we stood against the council in the local elections and we fielded uh, candidates in every seat bar two. Uh, and we took 15,000 votes, which was about 11%. We unseated the chair of planning. We didn't actually win any seats ourselves, but we helped unseat the chair of planning. And we ran the leader of the council very close. And very quickly after that, Greenwich Council gave planning consent for Charlton to return to the Valley. So that was a kind of evening comedy political experience. It was absolutely extraordinary, but it certainly fueled my passion for the democratic process and my understanding of it. And I went on to become a, a, a Bexley Labour councillor in 2002, served there for four years. And after that, we moved down to Thanet and I eventually got onto Thanet District Council in 2011. And I'm in my third term on Thanet District Council. Yeah, just should point out actually that you've had a long association with Charlton Athletic, which sort of uh, you know we can explain why you did what you did back in the early nineties. So, what just tell us a little bit about your involvement with Charlton. So, uh, I've been going to Charlton since I was uh, seven um, in the back end of nineteen sixty nine. Um, in fact, I'm still six then. Uh, and uh, obviously as a fan, but I really got involved after the club moved to Sellers Park, which was opposed by me and quite a few other people in 1985. Uh, I ended up through that reporting on Charlton for the local paper, as well as running the campaign. I became sports editor of the local paper. 
1998, um, I was asked to go and set up a communications department at the club when they got promoted to the Premier League. So I actually worked for the football club for 14 years. Mm. And subsequently, I was involved in running coaches from all over Kent, which still run today, albeit at a lower level. Um, but we were taking up to 5,000 people into the Valley on match days when Charlton were in the Premier League uh, from Kent and indeed from East Sussex and parts of Essex. Yeah, very well um, supported in this part of Kent. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, really, really interesting. Um, listen, just want to uh, talk to you about sort of about Thanet, about Labour managed to overturn the Tories in Thanet. Um, do you think that that's a good sign for Labour's prospects locally in the general election this year? Yes, I think it's an encouraging sign. We took 40% of the vote in Thanet, which is... Um, certainly the highest we've taken in the last 20 years. Um, and indeed, it's the first um, majority Labour administration in Thanet um, since the 1999-2003 council. And I think, you know, the obvious coincidence is that that was the time that Tony Blair was in office and Labour were doing very well nationally. So I think we're very encouraged. We're certainly not taking anything for granted. We know it's a, a difficult area for the party. When there was a Labour MP in the South Thanet seat, Steve Ladyman, he had quite a small majority, even in 1997, uh, 2001 and, and 2005. So it's it's not the easiest seat for Labour. There are new boundaries which help us a little bit. Parts of Margate are, are coming in, which are potentially more favourable to us than bits of Savage that are going out. But we certainly know there's a lot of work to do to get people on side and get Polly Billington, our Labour candidate, in Louis Thanet constituency elected. Do you think that Keir Starmer has managed to seal the deal with the uh, British public? I don't think Keir Starmer himself would say that he'd sealed the deal because I don't think you should ever take people for, for granted politically. I think that there is a, a lot of dissatisfaction with the Conservative government and that's been reflected in the election results we've seen. I think what Keir Starmer has done is change the image of the Labour Party He's made it electable. He's made people listen to it again. But there's still work to do. And in our small way, we want to be part of that work over the next few months. Moving on to more local issues, the the, the new Labour administration at Sonic Council under your leadership has put a pretty big emphasis on social housing, saying that your council wants at, at least 400 new affordable homes by 2027. That's quite a small ambition, really, is it, compared to the need? It's about being realistic about what you can achieve. The council itself isn't able to, doesn't have large amounts of land that it can develop for affordable housing. We're doing what we can in that respect, and there are new sites that have been brought forward on, on land that the council does own. But what we're also looking to do is work in partnership with developers to take up the housing which they have to allocate as affordable housing um, as part of their planning application process, but which they're unable to find providers to use. In the past, those properties went to housing associations, but housing associations are, in general, no longer willing to take on those properties. So they would not be used for affordable housing if the council didn't step in. And obviously, it's such a, a serious situation that we're in in terms of housing need in Fallet and, of course, more generally, um, that we've got to take whatever opportunities we can. We'd love to do more than 400. We're saying 400 is our ambition. We think that's very realistic. Um, we're doing pretty well towards that. We're into the hundreds already and we've not been in the office a year yet. So I'm pretty optimistic about it. Of course, we can't solve the whole housing problem in Thanet by doing that. And we wouldn't pretend that we can, but we're going to do everything we can because we we understand that the need is there. Mm. One of the big problems that housing brings, and we've seen a lot of housing all over uh, Kent, is, is the problem of roads. Um do you think the roads are up to it in, in Thanet and, and that part of Kent? 
Uh, I think, well, I think generally speaking, there's a problem with the state of the roads, which I think we all we all understand. Um, and one of the things that gets people quite annoyed, actually, is the roadworks, some of which we've got going on in Thanet at the moment, to facilitate uh, new housing development, because obviously that causes delays in the meantime. There is a, a plan for a new Northern Link Road, which is a, a advancing through the system, which will unlock some of these housing sites. We're hoping that we're going to get some, or uh, well, Kent County Council is going to get some government funding to do that. Otherwise, it does fall on the people trying to develop the sites and that means in turn that they're less able to provide the affordable housing that we need because they've got to spend the money on infrastructure. But the infrastructure is built into the plan and people will always be sceptical about whether it's adequate and I absolutely understand that. Uh, But you don't plan to use these sites for housing without looking at the infrastructure first. Housing is obviously an issue and you've just outlined what those problems are. Thunder's got also got another problem is the the water system and um, partly down to the warm sewage system and, and how Southern Water deals with it. What can Thanet Council do to hold Southern Water to account for issues such as water outages and, and dumping raw sewage into coastal waters? What Can you just briefly tell the listeners if they're not aware of it, what problems there have been in the past? Yeah, there's a problem um, of unauthorised sewage outflows into the sea um, in particular, uh, but there have been there have been outages in terms of the water supply in the Broadbent area, and, and this is an ongoing issue with Southern Water. Technically, we don't have a lot of authority um, to challenge Southern Water. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we don't challenge them. We do. We talk to them all the time. We talk to them particularly about water quality um, in our in our on our bathing beaches because that's clearly a crucial part of Bannett's economy. We can't have a reputation. Um, which is about bad water quality around the street. So we're working with them on that all the time. Um, But it is a difficult issue going forward. There are plans for um, major investment in the infrastructure, but we would say it's not enough and it's not quick enough. Um, And we'll continue to put pressure on them, I think not just locally, but um, certainly in conjunction with other Kent authorities um, and indeed nationally. And, you know, we'd like to see the government take a, a firmer approach to um, the water companies. They, they make a huge amount of money. They also award themselves a huge amount of uh, you know bonuses and all the rest of it. Do, do you think the fines are adequate enough and do you think there should be criminal charges against the management of these companies when they continually allow all this raw sewage to be pumped into coastal waters? Do you think that they should be a criminal route? I think that there certainly needs to be a, a tougher regime and there needs to be tougher regulation and, and whether that's part of it or not, I don't know. But I certainly think that they need to be held to account um, and that lack of accountability is, is part of the problem in the system. Why do you think there is a local a, a lack of accountability? Well, because I think that when the, when the privatised uh, water system was set up, there was a... a lack of proper attention to regulation. I mean, I don't believe that the water companies should be in the in the private sector. I think that, uh, you know, I, I think even at the time that water was privatised, there was a, a feeling that it was uh, the wrong thing to do. And I, it's not something that I would have supported at the time, but we are where we are. And I understand that not everything can be changed back to where it was. We, what we need to do is, the important thing is that we change the outcomes um, and government, that needs to be government-led, really. Do you think that uh, Southern Water are, n- are now listening and are trying harder to play nicely with with the with the political parties in in, in Kent because they they've held their hands up they've paid a huge 
amount of money in fines. Um, do you think that there that there's a greater willingness on their part to try and put it right? I think that they're much more engaged with us. They talk to us and they they talk a good game. But I think everybody understands that it's the it's what actually happens which matters. Uh, the conversations don't mean anything if they continue to uh, cause the problems that they've caused in recent years. Do you think that there have been fewer problems in the last little period of time, say the last year, than compared to what was happening, say, four or five years ago? Do you think it's got better? Um, I think there have been less headline-making events, but of course the more these things go on, the less they make headlines because uh, people become accustomed to the problems. So I think you'd have to look at that statistically, really. Um, I, I, I think that they're, they're more aware of the need to prevent these things, whether they're actually being successful in preventing them is another matter. Okay. Another major issue of controversy in Thalet is uh, Manston Airport. Um it's possible reopening as a cargo hub has been caught up in some legal challenges and, 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 and its future as yet is uncertain. I, I know that some of your councillors have been uh, very involved in the campaign against its possible reopening. reopening. What, what's your position on that? Um, I think that the, the position is that the council has no say. Um, we've, we've got to a stage in the process where um, the council in its local plan has protected the site for um, potential aviation use. And it's really up to the legal process to sort itself out and decide whether the Secretary of State has made a lawful decision. If he has made a lawful decision, then the council uh, will get on with it insofar as it has a role in working with uh, River Oak Strategic Partners who, who own the airport um, to make sure that whatever happens, we mitigate the effects on residents and on the local environment to the greatest extent we can while uh, getting whatever benefits are available for the local community. So what I'm committed to doing is working constructively with the situation that emerges from the process. But the reality is, and despite what people say every time there's an election, Valley District Council has no say at this point in whether the airport reopens or not. The big question, I think, for the owners is whether they've got a viable business plan um, and we'll only know that if and when they get the opportunity to bring it forward. Okay, you made your point very clear, but TDC's role aside, do you think that it should reopen as an airport in any way? Uh, I don't think it will reopen as an airport, if I'm honest, because I don't think that the plan is likely to be viable. Uh, all the studies that have been carried out on this have, have, have challenged the need, have said that, the, that there isn't actually the demand for it. Um, the owners have a different view, and that's fine. Um the Secretary of State seems to have taken a decision regardless of the facts. We'll see whether he's taken a lawful decision. My view is that w whatever you think about it, the question is, is is it viable? And my personal opinion, and it is only a personal opinion, is that that's unlikely. Okay. Rick Everett, thank you very much indeed for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, all the best and uh, up the addicts. Okay. Thanks very much. Well, that's it for this week's Kent Politics podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to tune in to KMTV on Fridays at 5pm for their politics show. And we'll be back next week with more top news and analysis. All the best, Don. Thanks for listening to the Kent Politics Podcast. Don't forget to check out stories throughout the week on the politics page of Kent Online. And you can watch the Kent Politics Show with Rob Bailey on KMTV every Friday at 5pm or on demand at kmtv.co.uk.
This has been an I Am Listening original podcast. For more information, head over to our website, iam-listening.co.uk.